just uh, so that if there's anyone here new maybe wondering what our sermon's about, we're in a series that is kind of looking at beginning at the top, our stained glass windows telling the story of redemption. We've titled the entire series, His Story and Ours, because the story of the Bible is really more the story about God and how God relates to us than it is about us. In 2012, we looked at the story of creation and then the story of the fall, the story of the Ten Commandments and the story of the birth of Christ. In 2013, we looked at the ministry and life of Jesus and focused on Jesus as the word of life and Jesus as the light of the world. The last three Sabbaths, we have looked at the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ, and we've titled that The Cross and the Tomb. And after studying and preparing for this message this morning, I'd like to suggest that maybe we need to change that, that we really need to call it The Cross, The Tomb, and The Cloud. The Cross, The Tomb, and The Cloud. Today we're going to talk about a celebration that occurred. It wasn't a celebration for someone's birthday. It wasn't a celebration for an anniversary. It wasn't the celebration of a political victory. It wasn't the celebration of, of a graduation, although there are those aspects to it, I suppose. It wasn't the celebration of a sporting event. It was a celebration of a spiritual victory won by the triune God and celebrated in heaven. It took place immediately following the ascension of Jesus. Last week we noted that the cross is an incomplete symbol of Christianity. The cross is only part of the story. The cross is a symbol of the victory of sin, of the victory Christ won over sin and guilt. The cross is a symbol of our justification, how we are made right with God because Christ died in our place. But we noted that the empty tomb is a symbol of the victory over the power of sin in our lives. And it's a symbol of the sanctification that takes place where first we are declared righteous in our justification. God sees us as righteous as he robes us with the robe of, of Christ's righteousness and his sanctification. And then we are found in the process of being sanctified because the same power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power, according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that same power that transforms our lives and changes our hearts. And now today, we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus. We often linger at the foot of the cross in repentance and sorrow for our sin, and we should. Now and then we stand amazed at the open door of the tomb, and we are amazed by the power of God to transform us and change us. And we stand before the open tomb with the spirit of gratitude and a submissive spirit to receive that power into our lives, and we should. Seldom do we stand amazed with the disciples in our imagination on the Mount of Olives and gaze into heaven as Jesus is lifted up and disappears into the cloud. Why is that? And if you think I'm stretching it, all you have to do is open any hymnal, look up any list of praise songs, 
look back into any old church hymnal and you discover that there are literally hundreds of songs about the cross. But very few in number in comparison about the resurrection. And hardly any at all about his ascension. And what's really amazing is those that are in our hymnal about the ascension are ones we are, that are so unfamiliar to us, partly because the wording's so awkward and the songs are so difficult to sing and learn. When you look at praise music, you find the same story to be true. And, and I know there's newer praise songs out there, but the only one I can remember is the one that was sung last week, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, and it's, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, you came from heaven to earth, my, my death to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the, to the tomb, from the tomb to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high, and that's about it. Seldom do we stand in appreciation of what the ascension means to us. We're going to spend the majority of our time in Acts chapter 2 looking at what Peter said was what the ascension of Jesus means to us. But before we do that, we're going to look at what the ascension of Jesus meant to God and to the angels in heaven. And what it meant to them was a celebration of victory over sin and death and over, over everything the devil came to do. And, and as, very honestly, as Adventists, we don't do celebration all that well. We're more afraid of being irreverent than we are willing, willing to release our gratitude. But in heaven, there was a celebration. I, I remember in 1994, lived in Escondido at the time, and we had a number of friends over to our house to watch the Chargers play in the American Football Conference championship game against Pittsburgh Steelers. And it was a close game, and it got down to the final moments, and Pittsburgh was driving, and if they were to score a touchdown, they would win. And the last pass of the game was made, and a linebacker by the name of Dennis Gibson knocked the pass down, and the Chargers were going to go to the Super Bowl for the first time. It's so far the only time. And we were ecstatic. And we, we, even after our friends left, we kept watching and we, we saw the celebration on the local channel and pretty soon it was announced that there would be a celebration at Qualcomm Stadium and the gates would be open for anyone to come. It would be free. My son was in seventh grade and he looked at me and he didn't have to say a word. My daughter was a sophomore, and she looked at me, and she didn't have to say a word. And I looked at my wife, and I said, so, are we going? We called up our friends, and we said, let's meet down there. And we met down there, and we got there. The gates were opened at 4 o'clock. The chargers would not arrive till 7. The place was packed. The entire time they were waiting for the team to come, they were showing replays of that day's victory. They were showing replays of the previous victories in the playoffs. They were showing replays of highlights of that year. And with every replay, the crowd just went nuts. Before the team ever got there, everyone was, was, was almost hoarse. 
But when, when the team arrived and, and they were led by their head coach, Bobby Ross, and they started coming out of the stadium, people were so hoarse, they started just doing this where they were standing, and the place was literally shaking. I thought it was an earthquake. And as they announced the coach to come up to the podium, they could hardly get the people to quiet down so that he could be heard. And with each player that came forward, the quarterback, the linebacker, you name it, the place was just going bananas. All for a sporting event. I want you to imagine what it must have been like for God and for the angels. Waiting there, I don't know how long it took, waiting there for that cloud of angels to bring Jesus back to heaven, who had won the victory, not of one football game for one season, but who had won the victory of all victories. He won the victory that enabled the universe to be under God's control. His control not by power of force, but his control by the power of his love and by the mercy and his grace. Can you imagine what it would be like? I want you to try and imagine that. Because one of the, the very first reason for the ascension of Jesus was that he was going back to heaven so that the entire universe would know that his victory had been effective. Now, some of you may say, Pastor Gary, I, I thought that's what he did on that Sunday morning when he told Mary, don't keep holding on to me. What, didn't he receive God's approval at that point? Yes, but that was between him and God, I believe. But you see, if Jesus had just stayed here on earth, can't you just hear the devil saying, he didn't win anything, he's still down here. God won't accept him back into heaven. Jesus had to go back because that's the only way the universe would know that what he'd done was effective. And so, he went back. There is a psalm, Psalm 24, that it is believed was, was used on that occasion, according to Ellen White. Now, the history of that psalm was that it may have been written for the moving of the ark by David into the tabernacle. We know it was used for the morning worship in the temple on the first day of the week. And we know that it has, in modern times, been used for morning and afternoon worship on Sabbath in a synagogue when the Torah is returned to what they call the ark where the scrolls are kept. Oh, how I wish I could have heard it sung by the angels when Jesus came back. Don't turn to Psalm 24. If you've turned to Psalm 24, close your Bibles. We're going to try our best to convey to you the excitement and the joy of heaven when Jesus arrived. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior, 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Can you imagine the angels singing that? Can you imagine the looks of joy on their faces? Now, I, I don't know how they celebrate in heaven. And I'm not trying to, to be irreverent, believe me. But I had to think that there was a divine high five between God the Father and God the Son. I have to think there was, there was a warm embrace between them as, as God the Father, and I know God doesn't have a, a form, I know he's spirit, but as he patted Jesus on the back and told him what a good job he did. And those of you who are parents and you've seen your children do something that you were so proud of, you just couldn't contain it, you know what I'm talking about. There had to be a moment in heaven when God the Father and God the Son had a celebration for what Jesus had done that just made anything kind of celebration on this earth look like nothing at all. Am I going too far? I, I, I think not. And so... One of the reasons why the ascension should be important to us is, is, it, is it signals that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted. It also lets us know the celebration that took place in heaven. But there are three other reasons why the ascension should be important to us. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm... Forgot to do that one, sorry. That slide. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to go briefly through Acts chapter 2, going back to chapter 16 and all the way through chapter 36. I know we only read part of this for our scripture this morning. But you remember the story, Acts 2, Peter's given the, the sermon on Pentecost, and he begins because he's trying to defend the, the disciples and, and the effect of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. And he goes back to Joel chapter 2 and he says this was prophesied. The Holy Spirit would be poured out. The Holy Spirit would be poured out. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. He said the Holy Spirit would be poured out. It was prophesied that it would happen that way. But I want you to notice at the end of him talking about the Holy Spirit in verse 21, he says it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Peter's transition to his next point. And his next point is this, that Jesus Christ came in fulfillment of the messianic prophecies and he came to be the Messiah. And he goes on and, and as he's making that point, he's using scripture. He's using scripture to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. He's using Psalm 110, Psalm 16, Psalm, and Psalm 68 to give reasons why Jesus was the Messiah. And in this psalm, I want you to notice what it says about him. First in verse 22, he says, He was a man who did mighty wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. That was his life. 
Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's his death. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's his resurrection. And then he goes down a little ways further after using an example from <coughs> that we'll look at in a moment from David where he said, this isn't talking, Psalm's not talking about David, it's talking about Jesus because David's still dead and in his tomb. He said in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption, but this Jesus was raised up, and we are his witnesses. Now notice verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter linked Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension as vital points in Jesus fulfilling our salvation. All of them are vital points in Jesus fulfilling our salvation. He goes on. He goes on and he says, David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And the summary is found in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. In that passage, as I've already pointed out, David referred to Psalm 110 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 68. I want you to notice what it says in Psalm 110, verses 1 to 7. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The next verse says, I want to go back to the beginning. The second reason the ascension of Jesus is important to us is because Jesus serves as our mediator in heaven in order that he may empower us to live for him. I want you to notice what it says. He sends forth from Zion that he might rule in the midst of your enemies, those who are against God's people. He sends forth from Zion so that he rules over sin through us. And notice the response. Your people will offer themselves freely. They will have on holy garments the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Their lives will, will tell people that we serve a God of love and that that love is flowing from us and through us to them. It says, from the womb of, 
of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What does that mean? I think what he's trying to say is you will experience eternal life. You will experience eternal life. Not just when we get to heaven, but as we live on this earth, we experience eternal life. After he talks about what happens, he, he mentions you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You remember the story of Melchizedek from Genesis? Abraham's family, including Lot, had been kidnapped, taken away by Abraham's enemies who had looted Abraham's camp. And, and Abraham calls out to God, and God sends someone by the name of Melchizedek. We know very little. We don't know when he was born. We don't know the name of his parents. We don't know what happened to him after the story. But Melchizedek came, and he liberated Abraham's family from the enemy's hold. And I think the reason Peter used this part of the story was to remind us that what Jesus is doing in heaven now is he's liberating his family from the hold of Satan while we live on this earth. It doesn't stop there. It says that for those who don't accept Jesus, that those who refuse the salvation that's offered, that he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, and he will execute judgment against the nations, and he will sh shatter the chiefs over the whole earth. And then there's this, this one phrase that you kind of wonder what it's all about. It says that he, Jesus, will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And I thought about that, and I thought about that. What does that mean? And suddenly, remember the story of Gideon? Remember how they're far outnumbered and he cries out to God and, and God sends him, tells him, the messenger says, I'm going to be with you. And he calls the people together to fight. And, and God says, wait a minute, you've got too many and they're already outnumbered. So he gives them a test and a number of them fail the test. He says, and the test was simply this. If, if, you, if you're afraid and, and you don't want to go to war, then go home. God comes back and says, Gideon, there's still too many. He says, well, what do you, he says, let me give you a test. Go down to the river, and those who kneel down and, and drink with their hands and their head down, those are the ones that you tell them to go home. But those who, who stand there and who have their heads up and they lap up the water, those are the ones I want because they're ready, they're looking, they're watching. Is it possible that David had that in mind when he used this, this phrase, that Jesus is in heaven and he is so anxious to save you and to save me and to save as many as he can that he is as a soldier there with his head up watching over us. And 300 men won that battle when they shouldn't have. And Jesus won the battle for you and for me. And he's watching over us so that he can redeem us and take us home to heaven. David, or Peter, has one more psalm in mind. And, and we'll refer to it briefly from Psalm 16, 8 to 11. Because this is the one he referred to when he said that this was a, 
a prophecy about Jesus as Messiah that wasn't referring to David but was referring to Christ. But I just want to skip down. We've already read the passage that he quotes, verses 8, 9, and 10. But I want you to notice verse 11. You make known to me the paths of righteousness. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The Bible only mentions one thing as being at the right hand of God. Who is it? Who is it? It's Jesus. When our eyes are focused on Jesus who has ascended and is ministering in heaven above, there is a fullness of joy and we can have pleasures forevermore. Away with the idea that Christianity is a mournful religion. Away with the idea that we can't have joy in our experience and our walk with God. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. If our eyes are focused on ourselves and what we do, there's little joy. If our eyes are focused on what we should do, there is little joy. If our eyes are focused on Jesus, there is a fullness of joy. That's what I want to experience, don't you? David goes on in his defense of Jesus as the Messiah, and he, he quotes from Psalm 68, verses 17 to 21. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. Oops, went too far. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. The chariots of God are tens of thousands. God comes down to Sinai. Do you remember the story in Exodus 19 about when God gave the law and he came down to Sinai? It says the the mountain was enveloped with a thick what? A thick cloud. When Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, he was taken up in a what? Cloud. When Jesus comes back, it says he's going to come back on the clouds. I don't think it's describing a foggy, misty cloud that a jet can knife its way through. I think it's describing a cloud made of angels. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, can you imagine being one of those angels that is carrying the Son of God in his human form, taking him back up to God? Can you imagine that honor? And so it says the chariots of God are 10,000 10, times 10,000. And when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. That has two meanings. There were those who had been resurrected from the dead that Jesus took with him. But also Ephesians 4 tells us that when Jesus went back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to give gifts to men, to carry on his ministry and his work that others may be saved and redeemed. That's the third reason. the third reason Jesus ascended. He ascended so that his, his victory could be assured. He ascended so that, so that he could give gifts. And there's a fourth reason that's not completely spelled out, but it makes absolute sense. Remember when Jesus talked to the, to the disciples 
before he was crucified. He said, it's good for you that I go away because if I don't go away, I cannot send the comforter. Why? Because it would be the comforter who would give those gifts. And as long as Jesus was on this earth, where do you think the disciples would be? Before he ascended, he told them, you are to be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. If Jesus was still here in person, how far from Jerusalem would the disciples get if Jesus was still in Jerusalem? How far would, from Judea would the disciples get if Jesus was still in Judea? And if he went to Judea, then Jerusalem would be left without a witness. Jesus needed to be ascended because only because he was ascended could the Spirit do his work in and through the church. Only then. I want you to notice, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. It's going back to the second reason that he's there in heaven for us. But I want you to notice something else from this psalm. I believe these two verses are talking about Christ's work of mediation. Our God is a God who saves, not future, present, <coughs> and future. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. I've mentioned that Jesus had to ascend to be our mediator, our high priest. We have a member in our church who practices law and is heavy into mediation, Richard Pershing. Some of you, including myself, have taken courses on mediation from him. Now the purpose of a mediation, of a mediator here in, this, in, in, in our world is to try and take two people who are in conflict to listen to each other's side, to maybe come up with a compromise that both sides would be happy with. And if they should be reconciled, that's okay, but the primary thing is to bring them together to resolve the conflict. Jesus is not our mediator to get us to accept a compromise with God or to get God to accept a compromise with us. Jesus is a mediator to bring us back to God and God back to us. And I want you to notice how he does it. He first does it by coming to us and telling us about a God who loved us so much that he would rather send his son to die for us than to spend eternity without us. I want you to notice he comes to us over and over again and telling us that we are the apple of his eye, that he carries us on the, on the palm of his hands, that he will never let us go, he will never leave or forsake us. He does it by telling us that we are valued more, more than, than all the, the beautiful flowers of the field. He does it by telling us that in this vast universe, on this small little speck in space, in your house and in mine, the God of the universe is bending over with his head up, looking for us, watching over us, so that he can minister to us and save us. And he says, that's the kind of God your father is. Don't you want to know him? And then he turns to his father in heaven, and he says, Father, my son Gary, my daughter Irene, my daughter Valerie, my son Ryan, 
they've accepted your offer. They've said yes. My blood covers them. And God the Father looks at Jesus and there's another celebration in heaven with a high, divine, divine high five. And I know I'm on safe ground with that because Scripture says there is rejoicing over heaven over one sinner that's, law, that's saved. I know I'm on good ground with that because we're told that the very first thing that will take place in heaven will be a celebration dinner at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is a mediator not so that he can help God figure out just who can be saved and who can be lost, but on the basis of his life and death and ministry, Jesus is mediator so that as many as possible can be saved. I said at the beginning, we seldom think about his ascension. Now do you know why I changed the title from just the cross and the open tomb to the cross, the open tomb in the cloud. I mentioned about songs earlier. You may not be aware of this, but in the old hymnal that I grew up with, it had a black cover on the front. Some of you remember that one. They couldn't have any new songs that weren't appropriate for worship like how great uh, uh, oh. we sang it this morning all of a sudden had a senior moment how, how great thou art it wasn't good enough to be in the hymnal there's a song about the ascension of Jesus and it could be found in another book called Youth Sings that youth could use for their music it was called He Lives few of you remember that it was kind of hard to sing. It got way up there. Didn't have very many spirituals because it was questioned whether those were appropriate to sing. So I went back to a previous hymnal. There was Christ in Song before that, and then there was Hymns in Tune in the 1900s. And Hymns and Tunes is, does the same thing Christ in Song did. It has fewer songs with with the music, but it has a lot more verses by themselves, and it will tell you which number to go to where you can sing that song to the tune that was familiar from other songs. I went to hymns and tune, and I found a song written by Charles Wesley about the ascension. It's, it's sung to the tune Take my life and let it be, the same tune. And so I'm going to ask you to stand, and we are going to praise God for the ascension this morning by singing a song about the ascension. The words will be on the screen, and you can join with me. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing, Christ is risen, our Lord and King.